Welcome to Reading Around Macroeconomics. My name is Emil Kalinowski, and today's authors work for the Bank for International Settlements. Robert McCauley, Patrick McGuire, and Philip Wooldridge just wrote a paper that is titled Seven Decades of International Banking. What Have you ever wondered what would Jeff Snyder sound like if he had an official voice, if he was part of the establishment, if he was on the inside, but he wanted you to know about the euro dollar, about the expansion of money offshore, off the regulatory radar, and beyond the control of central banks? Well, then this piece, which was just written this month in the BIS Quarterly Review, September 2021, is exactly what he would sound like. It's an important piece. It's educational. And I think you're going to enjoy it. I think this is a keeper. Chapter 1. Seven Decades of International Banking From the ashes of the Second World War, international banking re-emerged starting in the 1950s. In 1963, when the BIS started to collect data, banks' outstanding international claims amounted to less than 2% of world GDP. They grew rapidly in the following decades, peaking above 60% in 2007 before retreating to near 40% in early 2021. As the market expanded, the early predominance of interbank activity in a few major currencies gave way to business with non-bank financial and non-financial counterparties in a multitude of currencies. This feature explains the structural and cyclical factors behind these developments. Regulatory arbitrage, financial innovation, and financial liberalization were key drivers. Regulations that raised the costs of domestic intermediation made it attractive for banks to borrow and lend abroad. The development of new financial products, including syndicated loans and derivatives, altered the way that banks managed risks in their international portfolios. The transition of the broader international financial system from a tightly managed one with extensive exchange controls and capital account restrictions to today's market-driven, integrated system was both a cause and a symptom of international banking's growth. Alongside these structural factors, global financial imbalances have shaped and been shaped by international banking. Cross-border lending enabled the credit booms at the heart of several international financial crises, notably the Latin America debt crisis in the early 1980s, the Asian financial crisis in the late 1990s, and the Great Financial Crisis of 2007 to 2009. Ahead of each crisis, competition among banks for market share contributed to surges in international credit. The rest of this feature is organized as follows. The next section describes how segments of the international banking market have evolved since the 1950s. The following sections analyze how regulatory arbitrage and financial innovation shaped the market's development. The penultimate section assesses how international credit enabled booms ahead of financial crises. And the final section outlines policymakers' response to the challenges posed by international banking. Chapter 2. The Offshore Core of International Banking International banking is an amalgamation of cross-border and foreign currency business. 
It consists of three segments. The first two encompass traditional international banking, cross-border transactions in the domestic currency of either the lender or the borrower. For example, a U.S. dollar loan from a bank in the United States to a borrower abroad, or a dollar loan from a bank outside the United States to a borrower inside. The third segment is the offshore market, where business is denominated in a currency that is foreign to both the lender and the borrower. After the Second World War, the offshore segment emerged as the core of international banking. For many centuries, banks had used funds raised in their home country to finance international trade and extend loans to foreign kings and governments. In the 1950s, this traditional model, model started to give way to one where banks funded their international business from abroad. By the mid-1970s, the offshore market constituted the bulk of international claims. Lenders and borrowers have opted overwhelmingly to conduct their foreign currency business in the offshore market. For example, non-banks outside the United States place only a small fraction of their U.S. dollar deposits with banks in the United States. The share of their dollar deposits in banks outside the United States was as high as 90% in the early 1990s and averaged 77% over the 2000 to 2021 period. Similarly, they borrow U.S. dollars mainly from banks outside the United States. For the Euro too, the offshore market is where non-banks outside the Euro area prefer to transact. To a lesser degree than for the dollar, but to a greater degree than for Euro legacy currencies. And non-banks outside Japan have deposited their yen mainly in banks outside Japan since the mid-1980s. Their borrowing of the yen from banks outside Japan gained ground more slowly, but is now mostly offshore too. The significance of offshore banking is reflected in London's premier position in international banking. Even though the U.S. dollar has been the leading currency during the post-war era, New York's preeminence in the international banking New York's preeminence in international banking was short-lived. London came to the fore already in the 1960s, where it has remained in most years despite Sterling's small share of international claims. In the 1970s, more than a quarter of international claims were booked at banks in the United Kingdom, mainly in London. In the late 1980s, Japanese banks Attachment to the traditional cross-border banking model briefly put Tokyo ahead. London's share rebounded during the decade before the GFC, and while subsequently losing ground to Asian financial centers, it retained, it remained on top at the end of March 2021 with a 16% share. Chapter 3. Origins in Regulatory Arbitrage at the outset, offshore banking attracted business by avoiding some regulations that apply to domestic banking. Differences in the regulatory treatment of banks' domestic and offshore funding created the, created the equivalent of a tax wedge, which enabled banks abroad to offer higher interest rates to depositors and lower ones to borrowers. 
U.S. regulations had the greatest impact, given the dollar's dominant role in international banking. Regulations in other countries also created opportunities for the offshore market in the Deutschmark, yen, and other currencies to grow. The most relevant regulations included ceilings on deposit rates, reserve requirements, and deposit insurance premiums. As early as 1955, a London bank priced U.S. dollar deposits at yields above the U.S. deposit rate ceiling. In 1966, when the deposit rate ceiling bound in the United States, I think they meant to say, in 1966, with the deposit rate ceiling bound in the United States, the big U.S. banks turned to their London offices to replace lost domestic deposits. Without the costs on intermediation imposed by reserve requirements and deposit insurance, banks outside the United States regularly offered higher rates than banks inside, and Europeans, especially central banks, quickly accepted the novelty of offshore dollar deposits. U.S. multinationals, too, deposited dollars abroad, and from the 1970s, U.S. money market funds channeled U.S. households and corporates' dollars into offshore accounts. Regulations incentivize banks not only to raise dollar funding outside the United States, but also to lend dollars from abroad, including to U.S. residents. After the U.S. Federal Reserve extended reserve requirements to cover banks' net dollar funding from abroad in 1969, foreign banks avoided them by booking loans to U.S. firms at affiliates outside the United States. In 1970, with credit ceilings and reserve requirements restricting lending in much of Europe, European corporates borrowed substantial amounts of dollars offshore for the first time. Over time, the easing of national regulations has reduced opportunities for arbitrage. For example, the United States removed the interest rate ceiling on large deposits in 1970. Also, as yields fell in the 1980s, reserve requirements imposed smaller opportunity costs, and the Fed set them to zero in 1990. However, U.S. deposit insurance still confers an advantage on offshore dollar deposits. More generally, financial liberalization resulted in a gradual shift in the composition of international banking away from the offshore market. The opening of capital accounts and deregulation of financial systems by many advanced and emerging market economies starting in the 1980s spurred growth in other segments. The offshore segment share thus declined from close to 70% in the late 1970s to around 40% in 2021. What displaced offshore banking was cross-border business in the borrower's domestic currency. Whereas such activity accounted for slightly more than 10% of international claims in the late 1970s, it accounted for almost 40% in early 2021. 21. For the U.S. dollar, cross-border claims on U.S. residents expanded more rapidly than those on non-U.S. residents until the mid-2000s. For the euro, cross-border claims on euro-area residents 
which account for a majority of euro-denominated claims, rose rapidly after the currency's launch. Their growth propelled the euro's share of international claims to nearly 40% in the mid-2000s, although it then fell in the wake of the GFC and European sovereign debt crisis of 2010 to 2012. In effect, financial liberalization reduced the scope for regulatory arbitrage and broadened investment opportunities. Whereas in the 1960s and 1970s, banks had mainly extended foreign currency credit to other banks that subsequently on-lent the funds. Starting in the 1980s, they increasingly extended credit directly to the final borrower in the borrower's currency. The share of the international credit denominated in a currency other than the US dollar, yen, or euro has risen steadily since the mid-1980s from 10% to 17% at the end of March 2021. Moreover, financial liberalization led to an expansion of multinational banking, where banks fund their activities locally in the currency of the country where their affiliates operate. In early 2021, foreign bank local claims in emerging market economies were almost as large as their international claims, and globally, their local claims were about three-quarters as large. Chapter 4, Propagator of Financial Innovation International banking was sometimes an incubator and more often a propagator of financial innovation. New or enhanced financial products, notably syndicated loans and derivatives, significantly altered the way that banks managed the risks associated with their international portfolios. The development in the late 1960s of syndicated loans made it easier for banks to manage their credit risk exposures. The syndication process enabled smaller banks to participate in international loans and facilitated the trading of loans in the secondary market. It also increased the size of loans available, which attracted a wider range of borrowers, including sovereigns, who might otherwise have tapped bond markets. Syndicated loans typically took the form of medium-term floating rate loans with interest rate risk that matched banks' short-term deposits. Owing to London's preeminent role in the offshore market, the London Interbank Offered Rate emerged in the 1970s as the standard reference rate for floating rate contracts. Innovations in derivatives markets further reshaped banks' international business. Prior to the 1980s, banks had hedged risks or taken positions by transacting in the interbank market at different maturities and in different currencies. This had inflated interbank positions on their balance sheet. The development of interest rate, foreign exchange, and credit derivatives enabled banks to shift risk management activities to their balance sheets. I'm sorry, off their balance sheets. In effect, Derivatives made it easier for banks to decouple the risk profile of their portfolios from their origination business. Banks' worldwide derivative assets increased from about $1 trillion in the late 1990s to $8 trillion at the end of 2020, with considerable variation during the intervening period. Over one-third of their derivative 
Over one-third of their derivative assets have been with foreign counterparties, and at the end of 2020, these assets accounted for around 8% of total foreign exposures. The expansion of secured funding markets also changed banks' management of credit exposures, as well as broadening banks' access to money market investors. Repos further reduced their interbank exposures, albeit by increasing exposures to central counterparties. For example, in the euro money market, unsecured funding dwindled to a small fraction of short-term funding after the GFC. In turn, the growing share of repos backed by high-quality collateral underpinned higher standardization and thus greater use of central clearing. The expansion of derivatives and cleared repos has made interbank links more complex and opaque. Specifically, while transactions among banks remain an integral part of international banking, fewer of them appear as such on bank balance sheets than in the past. The BIS locational banking statistics which track on balance sheet positions indicate that interbank assets peaked in 1989 at 73% of international claims, but had fallen to around 50% by early 2021. Excluding intergroup positions, i.e. business between offices of the same banking group, the decline is even more pronounced from 44% in 1989 to 20% in 2021. Chapter 5. Competition for Market Share and Credit Booms The combination of regulatory arbitrage and financial innovation had, by the 1970s, transformed international banking into a powerful machine to extend credit. Financial liberalization and competition among banks for market share fueled the machine and provided a further impetus to growth. U.S. banks were the dominant international lenders in the 1970s. Japanese banks replaced them in the 1980s. Throughout the 1990s and 2000s, European banks gained market share, which they then ceded after the GFC. International bank rendered International bank credit has tended to grow faster than domestic credit, driving the buildup of financial imbalances during booms in borrower countries. Its interbank component is especially volatile, swinging in sync with global booms and busts. Indeed, financial crisis became more frequent after the 1970s, owing in part to the credit excesses enabled by international banking. Three peaks in the growth of international claims after 1980 coincided with post-war crises. The Latin American debt crisis in 1982, the Asian financial crisis in 1997, and the GFC in 2007 to 2009. The ascendant national banking systems of the day played a key role. The 1982 crisis came on the back of a decade-long expansion in international bank credit to emerging market economies. By the late 1960s, competition among banks had driven down margins on cross-border loans to advanced economies. Seeking higher returns, banks expanded their lending to EMEs, mainly to sovereign borrowers. While U.S. banks dominated lending to EMEs in the early 1970s, Japanese 
and European banks made inroads as the decade wore on. Following the 1973 rise in oil prices, deposits from oil-producing states further boosted lending to emerging market economies by easing banks' funding conditions, especially for banks outside the United States. Banks found eager borrowers in Latin America who initially sought financing for industrialization and imports and later borrowed to cover the costs of servicing their growing debts. Competition to meet this demand, coupled with a perception that sovereign borrowers were low risk, resulted in an easing of lending terms amid high volumes. Banks' cross-border claims on the region more than quadrupled between end 1974 and mid-1982, from $43 billion to $197 billion, far outpacing the growth of international bank credit to other regions. However, after Mexico announced in August 1982 that it could not meet its foreign currency debt obligations, international banks found that interest and exchange rate risks, which syndicated loans had in the first instance, instance transferred to borrowers, ultimately emerged as higher credit risk on their own balance sheets. Competition for market share also featured in the run-up to the Asian financial crisis in 1997. In the 1980s, low capital costs enabled Japanese banks to lever up and expand internationally. In particular, they drove a boom in interbank lending in the second half of the 1980s. Concerns that Japanese banks were undercapitalized during this period were an impetus for the first Basel Capital Accord in 1988. The busting of the Japanese asset price bubble starting in 1990 ushered in an extended period of retrenchment for Japanese banks, but not from everywhere. Japanese bank claims on emerging Asia doubled between end 1990 and mid-1997, from $60 billion to $124 billion. They were by far the largest foreign creditors to the region, accounting for about one-third of international credit on the eve of the Asian financial crisis. The credit boom in emerging Asia also brought in European banks, who combined, whose combined share of claims on the region rose from 35% at the end of 1990 to 51% in mid-1997. Thailand's abandonment of its currency peg in July 1997 triggered a pullback by banks, initially from Asia, but by 1998, globally. The growth of international bank claims slowed from 15% in late 1997 to 10% in mid-1998, and following the collapse of the hedge fund long-term capital management in October 1998 to 1% in mid-1999. Competition for market share and the resultant lowering of credit standards again came into play in the build-up to the GFC. With few regulatory limits on overall leverage, European banks, and in particular Belgian, Dutch, German, Swiss, and UK institutions, as well as US investment banks, geared up their balance sheets. In doing so, they drove the growth of international bank credit above 20% in mid-2007. The accelerating growth in international credit during this period enabled both directly and indirectly credit booms 
in many borrower countries, advanced economies, and emerging market economies alike. Banks direct cross-border credit to non-banks grew at a much faster clip in the run-up to the GFC than did local bank credit. Banks also lent cross-border to local banks that then channeled the funds to resident non-bank borrowers. As cases in point, direct and indirect cross-border credit to non-banks in Hungary and the Baltic states grew rapidly in the years preceding the GFC and by 2008 accounted for more than half the outstanding bank credit in those countries. The development of collateralized debt obligation and credit derivatives linked to them enabled European banks to participate in the U.S. housing boom in the mid-2000s, even in the absence of any U.S. mortgage origination business. Their dollar assets increased more quickly than their dollar liabilities, leaving them with a large funding gap, an excess of dollar assets over dollar liabilities. That is typically hedged through foreign exchange swaps. The bursting of the U.S. house price bubble in 2008 and the seizing up of dollar funding markets following the collapse of Lehman Brothers compelled banks to deleverage, which pu pushed the growth in international claims far into negative territory in 2009. Following the GFC, the growth in international banking has been subdued. After suffering big losses, European banks shrank their balance sheets by retreating from international markets. At the same time, the Canadian, Chinese, Japanese, and several smaller banking systems have expanded their global reach. Nevertheless, since 2008, banks' international claims have not kept pace with global economic activity. International banking has been constrained in part by the post-GFC reforms in bank regulation, which raised banks' risk-based capital requirements tightened leverage limits, and placed controls on the mix of funding instruments to contain liquidity risk. These measures have increased banks' shock-absorbing capacity, but have also raised the cost of balance sheet space. In banks' place, non-bank creditors have stepped in. The BIS Global Liquidity Indicators show that outstanding dollar credit to non-bank borrowers outside the United States more than doubled between mid-2008 and end March 2021 to $13 trillion. Yet over this period, the share of bank loans fell from 60% to only 47%. Non-bank borrowers have increasingly turned to bond markets for foreign currency funding instead of banks, giving a more prominent role to asset managers and other non-bank financial institutions as suppliers of credit. Chapter 6. Conclusion. Policy Responses. Policymakers responded to the challenges posed by international banking in three ways. First, they shone a spotlight on them. Improvements in internet BIS international banking and financial statistics followed each crisis. International banking has been a regular topic of discussion at BIS meetings, notably at the Euro Currency Standing Committee established in 1971, later renamed the Committee on the Global Financial System. Discussions in the 1960s and 1970s focused on the implications for monetary stability, while later ones turned to financial stability. 
The second response was to strengthen international supervisory and regulatory standards for banks. The Basel Committee on Banking Supervision, formed in 1974, promoted consolidated supervision of banks' worldwide operations and, following the 1982 crisis, agreed on a framework for minimum capital adequacy. The framework has been expanded and revised over the years, most recently following the GFC, when Basel III not only tightened capital constraints, but also provided for tightening them further in a boom. The third response was to set up central bank swap lines to backstop funding liquidity during periods of turmoil. Already in the 1960s, central banks had coordinated injections of dollar funding to reduce strains in offshore markets. These operations anticipated the use of central bank swap lines during the GFC and the COVID-19 crisis to alleviate pressures arising from non-U.S. banks' short-term dollar funding needs. The shift to non-bank finance in recent years brings its own challenges, but the responses under discussion are similar in form. More transparency about non-bank finance, revised regulation, and liquidity backstops. While today banks are perceived as a source of strength for the financial system, past episodes of turmoil demonstrate how the troubles of non-bank financial institutions can spill over to banks in unforeseen ways. I hope you enjoyed that piece. I certainly did. I encourage you to get a copy of it and look at it for a couple of reasons. Number one, there are graphs. Why is that important? Because the graphs help convey they're worth a thousand words, right? In the write-up, the BIS gives you information on where we were in the 1950s and then where we were in 2021. But these graphs show you the breakdowns, which are much more important, the exponential surge from the 1950s up to 2007, and then the entirely new world from 2007 to 2020. I think that's very important. Another important reason, there are two side boxes which I didn't read. What constitutes international banking and historical data on international banking. So check it out. There's a lot more good stuff here. Another thing I wanted to raise. In late 2019, Jeff Snyder submitted a paper to the BIS that that talked about his world view of the euro dollar and how important it is and how it's being missed it wasn't accepted for presentation but i swear to you that this paper reads like somebody got a hold of jeff's work and said why don't we put what he wrote through the lens of the bis and and it came and it's very informative but it's a little bit understated if you want a full-throated version of what jeff thinks about all this i encourage you to listen to his presentation at george gammon's a Rebel Capitalist Live, which I just read, that's episode 111. The last thing I wanted to tell you is in the show notes, you will find half dozen links to a kind of a Euro Dollar 101 must read, must listen, must watch set of resources, which this paper will now go in there. So if you want to know more about the Euro Dollar system, there will be half dozen links from various sources that will help you learn exactly what happened over the last 70 years.